a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I hope you came prepared today to revel in wrong think, because that's what we do. I actually do it Monday through Friday, a couple of hours a day. I feel like I should unpack that at some point and explain what it means to revel in wrong think. It doesn't mean that simply when someone says something, you go, nah. <laughs> it's, it's actually challenging the, uh, the dominant narrative. And, and sometimes, albeit rarely, that narrative uh, squares with the facts, squares with reality. Oftentimes, though, it doesn't. And the only thing that allows that narrative to gain a toehold and for people to uh, accept it as, you know, the way things are and always have been is because no one challenges it. So obviously this program is about challenging the narrative in those areas that pertain to things that matter, at least in my estimation, things that matter most. Things like personal freedom, things like free markets, private property, personal conscience, because all of these things typically are under attack in one way or another by much of what passes for the official narrative. So when we encourage you to engage in wrong think and to revel in wrong think, it's simply about being a free thinker. In fact, I got to share this with you just because I, I thought this was one of the cleverest things I've seen in quite a while. Um, saw this on lourockwell.com today, and I can't remember who it was who shared it, but um, I stole it shamelessly, shared it on Facebook, it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase with a definition. Complicity theorist. Noun. A person who accepts the political narrative of the day unquestionably, consumes mainstream media like it was 1980, and is prone to submissiveness, outbursts of irrational fear, and public shaming of free thinkers. I know. <laughs> I, I thought it was actually... Uh, I thought it was pretty clever, but the, but the point here is not to, hey, let's make fun of everybody else. Let's have a little bit of humor, but above all, let's be liberty-loving critical thinkers. Let's think for ourselves. I guess if I had to sum up, what is this program about? This is a program about brainwashing people into thinking for themselves. And I, I don't know if other hosts feel this way, but I would take it as a great personal compliment. When the day comes that you outgrow me because you think so much for yourself that you don't need me to point you a particular direction or share something with you or even stimulate your thinking. In fact, the, the biggest compliment would be you're doing this yourself. You have uh, created some platform of your own by which you are speaking truth. That's the idea. That's pretty much what I do. And I'm okay if you outgrow me. It just simply means you have furthered yourself in your journey to the point you don't need me. Wow, I got way off track, but I'm glad I did. Thanks for letting me share that with you. So among the things we're going to be talking about today, we'll talk about the political chest beating regarding Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and what replacing her on the Supreme Court is bringing out on both sides of the political aisle. Dan Sanchez, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says all of that overreaction and especially some of the really violent language that we're starting to hear tells us a lot about America's political future. 
We'll also spend some time talking about uh, capitalism, mainly because it's very poorly understood. But that's true with just about everything that becomes politicized, becomes distorted. Ken McManigal has a very concise, accurate take on the pros and cons of capitalism. We'll talk a little bit about gun control. I don't know if you've tried to buy a gun or ammo lately, but I'm starting to see some pretty concerned people. It's not the law that's preventing most people from finding a gun, uh, depending on where you live. It's supply and demand right now. Finding a gun, yeah, you can you can find some things that are, you know, the, the, the racks are pretty picked over in most gun stores. Finding ammo, good luck. It's extremely expensive and hard to find. We'll also talk about why trust in the heritage news media is evaporating. In fact, Robert E. Wright, in a piece published by the American uh, Institute for Economic Research, has, I think, an idea worth considering about creating a source of news that you can't abuse. And it's kind of a novel idea, but wow, is it needed? Because there's a lot of distortion in what's going on in our news these days. We'll talk a little bit about the millennial generation, the bad rap that they get of being spoiled, selfish, entitled little snowflakes. But keep in mind, they also have some pretty significant challenges that other generations haven't faced. And there's a really interesting piece by Shannon Roberts on intellectualtakeout.org that talks about one thing that the millennials are, are very good about is committing, at least in terms of committing, to their job. So it's not all bad news. And last but not least, in the course of today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the growing friction between stricter COVID-19 mandates and personal freedom. By the way, this is happening right where I live, in, uh, in Utah County, just south of Salt Lake City. Um, apparently, the governor and some of the county officials have now, the governor elevated a couple of cities in Utah County from yellow to orange status based on what he says is a spike in cases. We talked about this yesterday. That doesn't mean people hospitalized. It doesn't mean people dying. It just simply means positive tests. But also, the county commission apparently has uh, has passed some kind of a an emergency declaration mandating masks. If you're outside or inside, anywhere public, you're supposed to be wearing a mask. Not to uh, coin a phrase here, but that chaps my hide. Boy, does it chap it. But do you, do you realize there is a moral case for reopening society? In fact, for reopening our schools without masks. And John Tierney has that. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Let's start with Dan Sanchez's piece about uh, what the response to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death says about America's political future. And he starts with the question, is centralized power unraveling America's social fabric? Dan Sanchez says, burn it all down. Actually, he's not saying, he's quoting someone saying, bring it all down, burn it all down. Civility is dead. That's how leading political voices have been responding to the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at age 87 since it was announced on Friday. Now he says, others have voiced concern that America's social fabric, already frayed by the presidential election, the pandemic, the lockdowns and riots, may be ripped asunder by Ginsburg's passing. Could the passing of just one octogenarian judge tip the body politic into a death spiral? He says the fact that it's even plausible is a sign of something fundamentally wrong with politics in America. But more on that later. Let's start with the the powder keg, rather. He says, first, why the extreme reactions? 
Whether President Trump appoints a replacement before the election in 42 days may have momentous consequences. If the election's close and contested, the Supreme Court may end up deciding it as it did in the 2000 Bush v. Gore decision. Also, if Trump appoints a justice and then loses the election, the presumably Democratic victor won't be able to fill the vacancy. And this will be decisive for many Supreme Court cases. Many believe Roe v. Wade is on the line. Another contentious issue is that in 2016, the Republican-controlled Senate, led then as now by Mitch McConnell, refused to vote on a Supreme Court nomination by outgoing President Barack Obama, leaving that vacancy to be filled by Trump. Yet McConnell recently announced his intention to hold a vote on Trump's forthcoming nominees. Nominee, rather. Now, Dan Sanchez says some Republicans say the two cases are fundamentally different. Others don't care either way and argued that the recent ruthlessness of the enemy calls for anything-goes political approach. Thus, the civility is dead, remark tweeted by a prominent conservative writer. Democrats see the appointment attempt as rank hypocrisy that justifies extreme countermeasures, including packing the court if they win the presidency. Others have called for more riots and retaliation, thus burn-it-all-down tweets. CNN's Don Lemon remarked, we're going to have to blow up the entire system. So the situation is not just a powder keg, but a powder keg wheeled into an already burning building. The country's polarized. It's on edge. Both sides consider the stakes to be life or death, and circumstances threaten to produce an ambivalent, an, an ambivalent electoral outcome in which neither side is willing to accede or negotiate. Prominent figures and publications have warned that a constitutional crisis could be looming. In such a crisis, the political street violence we've already seen could grow much worse. Now, we're going to pause here for a moment because we're coming up on the break. But when we come back, Dan Sanchez delves into the root problem, which is namely, how did the Supreme Court become such an influential pivot point in American politics? Look, I'm no expert. But I don't believe the system that the founding generation gave us in any way was intended to hinge on just whether or not there's enough people, conservative or liberal, on the Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court was ever supposed to be the linchpin of how our government is supposed to operate. It's one branch of three branches created by the Constitution, called into existence by the Constitution. And yet we act like uh, this is this is our savior or perhaps our destroyer. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I want to mention we have wonderful sponsors who make this program possible. You can check them out by going to my show notes. Published every day that I do the program, right at the bottom of the page, you'll find a link to my sponsors, which include the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Jeff Staples Real Estate, and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse in Salt Lake City. Very happy to have all of them on board as sponsors, and also I, I wish to express my gratitude to those of you who have become patrons of this program and uh, through a monthly donation uh, help make it possible for me to keep doing what I'm doing. Thank you. 
I, I treat every dollar as if it is a, a sacred trust to speak the truth and not to go buy a Lamborghini. Although if somebody eventually gets tired of their Lamborghini and says, here, Brian, I want you to have this, I would strongly consider accepting it. Just saying. So I've been sharing this article from Dan Sanchez, what the response to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death says about America's political future. And when we look at the root of the problem, Dan Sanchez says, regardless of who is right regarding the appointment of whoever will replace her, the election or even Roe v. Wade, he says how we got to such a precarious place is clearly indicative of one thing. The presidency, the Supreme Court, and the federal government in general have come to matter far too much to Americans. The central government has grown too big and important. It has too many or too much inescapable power, rather, over too many lives, and there's too much on the line for any given presidential election and Supreme Court appointment. Now, that's not the way the American system was designed to work. The federal government was supposed to have strictly limited powers, leaving the rest to the states. Instead, the states have been demoted to mere provinces and the federal government into a super state. It's swollen into a super state. Ironically, this greater unity is what's dividing American society. By the way, unity is in quotation marks. The more power is centralized, the more all-encompassing, bitter, and mutually destructive will be the struggle over its possession, like Tolkien's Middle Earth descending into the war over the One Ring. Conversely, the less power is centralized, the more people are able to escape what they perceive as injustice and vote with their feet for a better jurisdiction. This incentivizes governments to be better, or at least at least less bad in order to keep and attract taxpayers. Many scholars have traced the rise of liberty and modern prosperity to such polycentricity and jurisdictional competition. He says in a more polycentric country, there'd be far less motivation to burn it all down if a Supreme Court appointment or presidential election doesn't go your way. Centralized power is unraveling the social fabric, demonstrating that the com- that common government is not what civilization depends on in the first place. That's quite an idea. He says, what truly weaves the social fabric is commerce and other forms of voluntary cooperation. While centralized power politics creates discord, even among family members, as we're increasingly seeing in this election... Voluntary commerce and cooperation is what creates a harmony of interests, even among strangers, across state lines, party aisles, cultural divides, and international borders. Historian Will Durant said, in one aspect, civilization is the habit of civility. To give up civility for dead, says Dan Sanchez, is to give up on civilization itself. He says, before discarding scruples and stooping to the level of our worst enemies... Let's try to give up on the never-ending tug-of-war over centralized power that's deteriorating civility and endangering civilization in the first place. Fantastic insights there. And it speaks to something that, uh, that continually concerns me. And I, I, I hope you don't feel like I'm singling you out when I say this. If, if you find yourself very driven by politics, after all, it's an election year, right? The fervor is, is quite real. But I find myself more and more wanting to abstain from all of the political rah, rah, rah. Had a good friend yesterday trying to, to, you know, get me to interview a candidate on my program. And as a rule, I generally try to avoid candidate interviews. And it's because, I number one, I'm trying to keep an aloofness insofar as I can. And I'm not always perfect at it, but I... 
I want to I want to give you as much opportunity as possible to to make up your own mind without me trying to influence you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the only way to go. But more importantly, I have come to a point where I am increasingly rejecting politics as a mechanism for change in society. Because it's very clear to me that politics is just it's it's about controlling that power. It's about, we've got to get our hands on that power so that we can use it against them, which is very appealing to people who are enemy-driven. And I used to be one of those people, but I'm not anymore. And what's funny is is my friend actually kind of tried to guilt me a little bit, like, well, what, you don't want to be more involved in politics. Why? That's, that's uh, to, to not speak is to speak, you know, quoting uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was, was opposing the Third Reich. No, no, to not uh, immerse myself in politics is not to uh, allow or to give uh, acquiescence to what's going on. I simply have found other areas in which I have found more productive use of my influence than the political stuff. Now, that doesn't mean I entirely turn my back on politics. I participate to the extent that I have influence. But I recognized a long time ago That influence is very blunted. And when it comes to influencing public policy, um, you and I, as just the average citizen, don't have nearly the kind of influence that the lobbyists and corporate interests have uh, because of the resources that they enjoy and the the access that they have to lawmakers. I mean, they'll literally write, a, a corporation will literally write or an industry will write legislation and then go shopping for some legislator that will enact it for them. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. Now, having said that, there are grassroots organizations. I'll point to my friend Connor Boyack and his Libertas Institute, which is positively changing minds, changing hearts, and shaping public policy. And they they work within the system. And it's hard work. I don't know of anybody who works harder in the cause of liberty than, than Connor. But not everybody is a Connor Boyack. And he's done some great things to help people be citizen lobbyists and be better in touch with their, their legislators. And I think that's, that's all very worthwhile. But here's where I'm drawing the line. If you are consumed with politics, and particularly the kind of politics that is far outside of your circle of influence... In other words, if you're more concerned about the Supreme Court or you're more concerned about what Joe Biden said or his latest gaffe or what the president tweeted, and if that's where you spend all of your time, if you're allowing people who really have no direct influence on your life to take up residence rent-free in your brain, there might be a problem. You might want to reconsider or at least start charging a higher storage fee for allowing them to be there. What I see happening is I see people getting stirred up and and absolutely worked into a frenzy over things that, that in a real sense, have very little to do with their lives. And come on, I know you've seen some of the different meltdown videos that have been posted here of late. Uh, The girl driving her car who drove past a pro-life billboard and is freaking out because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I mean, when I say freaking out, I mean she is literally shrieking at the top of her lungs. I wish I was never born! Because she is so concerned that based on this one appointment to the Supreme Court that uh, somehow Roe v. Wade may be in danger. That's a very unhealthy dependence on centralized power. And the worst part that I'm seeing right now is people are drawing this very 
broad line in the sand and saying, if you don't agree with me entirely, you are my mortal enemy. And this is happening on all sides of the political spectrum. And it's sickening. Look, we don't have to agree on everything. No one is trying to make the case that, uh, yeah, everybody should be marching in lockstep. No, we don't have to. But at the very least, we ought to be able to agree on a few things and peacefully work out those differences without government, you know, on the things where we don't agree. So here's another confession. Part of what I try to do is bring people together to where they can speak with one voice on the things that actually matter. The trouble is there's a lot of stuff telling us that there's no place where we have any common ground. I think we need to start looking for it. What do you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out for my friend John Staples and his lovely wife, Heather, at the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Patriot Home Mortgage operates in 23 different states. What that means is they have a lot of resources at their disposal when it comes to helping you secure a home loan or maybe refinance your existing home loan. So if you are within the sound of my voice, I would recommend go to staplesmortgage.com. It's really that simple, staplesmortgage.com. Get in touch with John. Tell him that his advertising message reached you and see what he can do for you. John is scrupulously honest. He's very hardworking and extremely savvy. And I have known this guy long enough to know it's not just a chance thing that uh, he's just doing currently, you know, for, for the current advertising cycle. This is who he is. He's a trustworthy guy who gets the job done and really pays attention to the details. And that's why I have absolutely no hesitation in recommending him to you with the Staple Turner's team, Staples Turner team, rather, at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage. Tell them thanks for sponsoring this program. Let's talk about capitalism. That's a word that gets kind of a knee-jerk reaction out of people because it's a word that is terribly misunderstood. You say capitalism to some people, and they'll be like, oh, yes, exploiting labor for profit. I think Karl Marx, that was kind of his take, right? Or they're advocating for relentless consumerism. Others look at capitalism with a, with a slightly uh, more accepting view. But, of course, we're not talking crony capitalism where big business crawls into bed with government and, you know, through protectionist policies and through corporate welfare, you know, makes a killing with a little help from government keeping their competitors at bay. So it's, it's easy to understand why people may have negative connotations about capitalism. And Kent McManigal has a really great piece. This is just a short little essay. I'll include this in the show notes. Addressing the faults of capitalism. And he starts with the question, does capitalism exploit labor for profit? Does it advocate for relentless consumerism? He says that's what a Twitter critic of capitalism claimed. And he was saying libertarians need to address these faults of capitalism. So Kent McManigal says, okay, is it exploitation if you hire me We both agree on how much you will pay me, and you profit from our arrangement so that you can continue to afford to pay me and maybe expand the business and hire some others and possibly make some money for yourself too. No. He says, look at that relationship honestly. 
And you could argue that either person is exploiting the other depending on your perspective and how negatively you view the world. He says, if I, were to, if I agree to work for you, I must have decided that the money you will pay me is worth more to me than the time was worth to me on its own. I made a profit by selling you my time. If not, why would I agree to the deal? He says, yeah, I understand that I need money so I can buy necessities. That's part of the calculation. I see no lopsided exploitation here, absent coercion, the political means. And by the way, relentless consumerism, he says, if you make stuff that I want, are you forcing me to buy it? If I buy it, is that nothing but consumerism or do I find some value in what you produced? He says, I see products vanish all the time, unable to convince sufficient numbers of people to buy them. Some of my favorite products went away because not enough people liked them as much as I did. Was I a victim of relentless consumerism who was freed from my chains when that product was discontinued? Or did I lose out on something I really liked due to consumerism not being quite relentless enough? Ken McManigal says, I know that all depends on how a person defines capitalism. If you define it as a political system, then he says, yeah, I would oppose it too, unless I were smart enough to see that this is a dishonestly biased way to define it, based on the beliefs of crooked Karl Marx. He used the term to disparage what he didn't like, so maybe capitalism isn't the right word. In fact, he says, that's why I prefer the term the market. That keeps it apolitical, except that people who are obsessed with politics will still try to make that political too. If they get their way... We'll all be slaves to poverty and starvation, but at least we'll die in the cold as equals. <laughs> Kent's got a way of uh, putting things into perspective. I love it. All right, moving on. I don't know if you tried to buy a gun or ammo lately, but uh, pretty much all you're going to get is exercise. Seriously, it's harder than Chinese arithmetic, especially to find ammo. And I think this shows that a lot of people have decided for themselves, regardless of all the lofty rhetoric about, well, you know, we don't want guns in the wrong hands or too many guns is going to make us an unsafe country. I think a lot of people have woke up to the idea that, you know, when there are marauding rioters, arsonists, and looters right there on my doorstep, I can't count on the state to be the one to swoop in and save me or protect me. And the Supreme Court long ago decided... You cannot sue the police for not being there to protect you when a crime is taking place. And so we still hear some misguided cries for gun control. By the way, if Joe Biden or whomever his replacement is actually wins in November, I would expect to see an extremely fast and hard ramp up pushing for absolute gun control, maybe outright gun confiscation. Why? Because there will be a move to centralize power and they cannot completely centralize power if the citizenry remains armed. I'm not saying uh, there's going to be a false flag shooting. I mean, you never know. You never know. They can take an event and turn it into a cause celeb via the media. But I think you will see a push to consolidate power and especially to centralize power over the use of force like we've never seen before in this nation's history. And I think it would be a really foolish thing, because I don't think all those guns and all that ammo that's been bought up, especially since the start of this year, I don't think anybody purchased those with the idea, well, I'm just buying this up in case someday I have to hand it in. I think people understand the firearm is a life preserver. 
and the seas have been getting rougher and rougher all year long, that's not the time to turn loose of your life preserver on the assurance that some government boat is going to be along to to save you in your time of need. David Coppell has been writing about guns and gun control for a long, long time. He's got an article on Reason.com, Gun Control Puts Your Life at Risk. And interestingly enough, he's not talking about this just from a street crime, rioters' point of view. He's talking about how in the 20th century, far more people were murdered by genocidal governments than by armed criminals. And that is why you cannot turn loose of your life preserver when someone wants to centralize power and control over you. He says, according to strict gun, pro- according to gun prohibitionists, rather, Europe is much safer than the United States because Europe has stricter gun control. In fact, the historical record shows that excessive gun control, as in Europe, is about 100 times more deadly than insufficient, in quotation marks, gun control, as supposedly in the U.S. So while a lone criminal with a gun can be very dangerous, a criminal government with a disarmed population is the deadliest thing on earth. He says, let's start with the data. If U.S. gun homicide rates had been as low as European rates in the 20th century, how many lives might have been saved? Well, according to a 2018 article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association back in 1990, a bad year for violent crime in the U.S., the age-adjusted U.S. firearms homicide rate was 5.57 per 100,000 population. That same year, the rate in Western Europe was 0.53, And the rate in Eastern Europe was 1.31, giving us a European average of 0.92. Now, the difference between the European rate and the American rate is 4.6 point, I'm sorry, 4.65 per 100,000. Since the U.S. population in 1990 was 249 million, these data indicate that the U.S. had 11,000 more firearms homicides that year than it would have had if the rate had been as low as it was in Europe. If we apply the estimate of 4.65 additional gun homicides per 100,000 population to every year of the 20th century, taking into account changes in the U.S. population, we find that the United States had 745,162 more firearms homicides than it would have had under the European average. Now, he says, for the sake of argument, we'll assume that every excess American gun homicide would not have been a homicide if the United States had adopted European-style gun control. That is, we'll assume that any other lethal means would not have substituted or been substituted for firearms. We also won't consider that many American gun homicides are justifiable self-defense. In other words, when a would-be killer is shot by a law enforcement officer or a citizen, we'll consider the criminal's death to be just as bad as the death of an innocent victim. And finally, he says, we'll ignore the extensive evidence that non-fatal defensive firearm use often prevents homicides and other crimes. So with the above assumptions, he says, the failure to adopt European-style gun control would be responsible for almost three-quarters of a million excess deaths in the United States in the last century. And that's a very large number. But he says it is two orders of magnitude smaller than the number of Europeans killed by governments during the same period. You heard that correctly. We'll unpack it a bit further, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, Dave Capel is making the case that gun control puts your life at risk. And I like this exercise that he does in this article, which, by the way, you will find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. He goes through and adjusts, uh, you know, the number of deaths uh, per 100,000 in Europe and the U.S. and shows that the failure to adopt European-style gun control would be responsible for almost three-quarter of a million excess deaths in the United States in the last century just because the U.S. failed to adopt strict European-style gun control. Three-quarters of a million excess deaths. And he says that is a very large number. It is, however, two orders of magnitude smaller than the number of Europeans killed by governments during the same period. Let that sink in for a second. International homicide statistics usually only count murders by individuals or small groups. So a a serial killer may murder two dozen people over the course of many years. A mass shooter could murder dozens at once. Those who use explosives or arson sometimes kill even more. But even in the aggregate, individual criminals or criminal gangs perpetrate vastly less homicide than do criminal governments. So in Europe in the 20th century... Governments killed about 87.1 million victims, according to research by the late University of Hawaii political scientist R.J. Rummel. That figure does not include combat deaths, such as in World War I or World War II. That's only the murder of civilians, from 61.9 million killed by the Soviet Union to 20.9 million killed by Germany. Over the long run, one's risk of being murdered is much lower in the United States than in Europe. So it's no surprise that migration between the two has always been very heavily in one direction. In fact, he says, I am alive to write this article because my Jewish, German, and Lithuanian ancestors migrated to the United States in the 19th century. And he says, by doing so, they increased their risk of being shot by an individual criminal, but drastically reduced their risk of being murdered by a criminal government. As we all well know, those risks did materialize in Germany under the Nazis and the communists, and in Lithuania under the Tsars, the Nazis, and the communists. And he says, because governments are so much more effective at killing than our individual criminals, even looking at all individual criminals combined, the United States was much safer than Europe in the 20th century. Rummel found that the less free the government, the more likely it is to perpetrate domestic mass murder. Totalitarian regimes perpetrate by far the most authoritarian regimes less so, and democratic regimes the least of all. Indeed, he says, no democratic government has committed large-scale murder against a population that was able to vote. So Dave Coppell says, if you could be sure that a given government would forever be democratic, there would be no need for arms to resist a possible domestic dictatorship. Unfortunately, certainty on that score is impossible. The list of nations to have maintained both independence and free government at all times since 1900 is really short. Australia, Canada, Sweden, Switzerland, New Zealand, the UK, and the United States. That's just seven out of 196 worldwide. He says only a foolish version of American exceptionalism would imagine that the United States has been granted permanent immunity from the dangers of tyranny. Democracy was founded in Greece... Yet that country has succumbed to dictatorship many times. 
Germany in 1900 was a progressive democracy and one of the most tolerant places in the world for Jews. But a lot can change in just a few decades. Wow, are we learning that lesson. He says, according to gun prohibitionists, armed citizens cannot meaningfully resist a murderous dictatorship with weapons of war at its disposal. But the dictators who do the murdering think just the opposite. In 1942, Adolf Hitler explained the necessity of disarming his victims. Quote, the most foolish mistake we could possibly make would be to allow the subjugated races to possess arms. History shows that all conquerors who have allowed their subjugated races to carry arms have prepared their own downfall by doing so. Indeed, he says, I would go so far as to say the supply of arms to the underdogs is a sine qua non for the overthrow of any sovereignty. In other words, it's a necessity. So let's not have any native militia or native police, end quote. Dave Coppell says tyrants past and present have come from virtually every continent and ethnic background. Now, their ideologies have varied, but they're united by a number of common practices. They do not allow freedom of the press or an independent court system. They attempt to bring religion under state control. And they claim for themselves a monopoly of force. Search the history of the world from ancient times to the present, and you will not find many tyrants who deviated from the principle that the state must be stronger than the people. Mass shootings by criminal governments occur predominantly in gun-free zones. In other words, places where the population has been disarmed. As soon as the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union began on June 22, 1941, special SS units called Einsatzgruppen began assembling all the Jews or gypsies from a village and marking them out, marching them out of town. The victims could then be easily machine-gunned at once. Within a year, just 3,000 Einsatzgruppen, aided by a few thousand helpers from the German police and military, had murdered about one million people. Now, Dave Capel says regime change is difficult once a tyrant has taken power, as today's China and Cuba illustrate. So as an anti-tyranny tool, widespread citizen arms ownership works most effectively when it deters tyranny in the first place. Among the reasons there was no Holocaust in Switzerland was that the people there were heavily armed and organized in a very well-regulated militia. The German military almost certainly could have conquered its uncooperative neighbor to the south. Yet because of the costs that the Swiss militia would inflict on the Wehrmacht, Hitler never had the nerve to mount an invasion. Even after mass murders have already begun, victims who obtain guns can save lives. During the Holocaust, armed Jews caused the Nazis much trouble in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising during Passover 1943, as well as in many lesser-known actions. The Nazi extermination camps of Sobibor and Treblinka were shut down forever because prisoners stole guns from the guards and led mass revolts. The the Bielski commando unit in the forests of Belarus grew to 149 armed fighters and saved a thousand more Jews. During World War I, when the government of the Ottoman Empire began murdering Christians, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved by armed resistance, which, by the way, relied on guns that the Christians had secreted in defiance of confiscation orders. Ronald Reagan, then governor of California back in 1975, observed the gun has been called the great equalizer, meaning that a small person with a gun is equal to a large person. But he said it is a great equalizer in another way, too, It ensures that the people are the equal of their government whenever that government forgets that it is servant and not master of the governed. End quote. 
Dave Capel concludes as the last century demonstrates the short-term risks of a well-armed civilian population are far less than the long-term risks of a government that is stronger than the people. Now, I know for some people this is going to fall on deaf ears. They're just going to bat it away. No, 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 no. The government has F-22 fighters. The government has nukes. The government has nerve gas. You can't possibly stand up to them. Which tells me that these people have not uh, so much as brushed up against history. Look, to completely control and subjugate a people, it's not enough just to have strategic weapons. Yes, they could turn the entire United States and and other places into nothing more than, than melted glass thanks to nuclear weapons. But that doesn't do any good for a person who really wants to control the people, the resources, and the land of a given area. If you want to control it, you have to physically be able to impose force right there on the civilian population. That means you're going to have to have a cop or you're going to have to have a soldier there to enforce your will on every street corner. Now, with a disarmed population... Okay, that might be a possibility. With an armed population, it's not going to be that easy. And it's not a matter of, well, it's a Red Dawn scenario and the citizens are just going to, you know, be out there standing on the hilltop shouting Wolverines as they attack this armored column and that. It's a little bit different. Because the citizens are not uh, likely to engage in organized warfare. They're not going to go out there and and mount some kind of an offensive like they're, you know, a, a... platoon of Marines, you know, out there to to kick butt and take names. It would be very asymmetrical, but it would also be very effective because those who go out there to enforce the tyrant's dictates would never know if they're completely safe. How do we know this? Well, talk to anybody who served in Iraq or who served in Afghanistan and ask them, hey, how safe were you once you were outside the wire? Could you freely walk around and know that nobody was going to challenge you or take a shot at you? Just ask them. They'll have your answer right there. I pray to God it never comes to anything like this. But the advice remains, do not turn loose of your life preserver. You might just need it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.